Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. If you've been listening to the station through the day or watching CHCH or reading the spec or wherever, uh, on Twitter, wherever, you have probably heard something about the meeting that was held in Ancaster last night about the Green Belt. Several hundred people showed up to express their views. The majority clearly very much opposed to the Ford government's uh, desire, design, plan to go into the Green Belt. Some supported it, but uh, the majority obviously opposed to it. One of those who was there, uh, who (laughs) clearly stood on the side of those who opposed it, is uh, Sandy Shaw, the MPP for Hamilton West Ancaster Dundas. She is also the environment critic for the NDP. Long time since you've been on the show. Sandy, thanks for coming back. Hello, Scott. How are you doing? I am doing well. It has been a long time. Sandy was a regular on here for a long time, but you know things get busy now that you're uh, now that you're a big shot with the NDP and you know <laughs> at Queens right. Park. This um, right. this was a uh, obviously there was a lot of people there yesterday who were opposed to the green belt idea. You clearly share that view. I don't think there's any uh, dispute about that. I, I was wondering though, is this something that you had felt? prior to or would have felt if you were not in government? Your, your party has had this position. Is this a, a party position or is this a Sandy Shaw personal position that you object to the Green Belt? Well, you know, the, the services showed about 90% of Ontarians are opposed to a building in the Green Belt. And before we go any further, we uh, as a official opposition NDP and myself understand we need to build housing. Absolutely. We have, need all kinds of housing, housing that people can afford. But it has been shown time and time again by experts, even the provincial government dug for its own hand-picked housing task force said, we don't need the green belt to build the housing that we need. And so why people are so outraged right now, it's not it's it's about the green belt, about you know the importance of those lands, about you know wetlands that clean our water, protect us from flooding, agriculture that feeds us. It's important lands that we're putting at risk, but it is cl- the process. It's so clearly an exercise. It's not about housing. It has been an exercise um, that has simply made rich, uh, connected developer friends of Doug Ford even richer to the tune of eight point three billion dollars. So even if people aren't, you know, really passionate about the green belt, they're pretty passionate about being lied to and hoodwinked by their government. Uh, your leader, Merritt Stiles, was on uh, with Scott Thompson prior to uh, to this show, and one of the things she talked about, and you've alluded to it too, uh, right off the bat, is that we do need to find housing. So uh, let's go with the idea that the green belt is not the place to make that happen. How do we deal with the needs then that we have for all the housing that we we have to have in this city and and the rest of the area? So, you know, one thing I want to make uh, clear is that developers aren't builders. So we talk about developers. These are people that are land speculators that get these things rezoned and make profit, profiteer off of land. But they don't actually build the housing. So what we need to do and what we should have been doing all along are supporting builders to, to make the conditions uh, right for builders to build the, the different types of housing that we need in Hamilton. We know that people, uh, we, we, we know that people need different types of housing. Some people need rental homes. Uh, some people need three-bedroom homes. There's all kinds of housing that needs to be built. But we haven't got to that point. We're not having that conversation because we're instead we're so far behind 
because this government has mired us in this scandal. So for us to move forward uh, to build housing, the government has to just stop with the cover story. I mean, I just heard on on the station the government saying, we need to build housing, we need to build 500,000 homes for people that are coming to the province. And at the end of this um, commercial, it says paid by, uh, paid for, this commercial, by the Ontario government. It wasn't paid for by the Ontario government. That commercial is paid by taxpayers. So this government needs to put the resources and the energy into a genuine, real effort to help people to afford places to live and not to spin and not to hide. I mean, we have an Auditor General report that said that's what they're doing, an Integrity Commissioner that said, basically, developers aren't just, like, uh, influencing policy. They're writing policy. Mm. They're handing, you know, USBs with information, and they're handing over, you know, brown envelopes with all the, uh, all the, the land that this, these uh, developers want uh, unleashed from the Greenbelt. Sandy, all if... of this has put us so far behind in actually building homes. Let me uh, let me jump in with one t- I think it's a tricky one because I've I've not heard an answer from anyone yet on this one. And that is okay, so let's say we we take the green belt entirely out. We say that we follow the city of Hamilton's uh council's thing about no more expansion of the urban boundary. We're going to build within the boundary that we have. It seems very often when someone proposes building a tower or building a building or building anything that would have housing, neighbors all complain about it and it becomes very difficult to get things built because they get slowed down because they have to go through the appeals process and everything else. Should, should the government, should municipal government, provincial government, everyone, should they be somehow making it so that those opportunities to complain are less so we can hurry it along and just get these buildings built? Or what we need to do is actually listen to people and make them part of the process so that, we, so that good planning uh, and engagement is central to all of this, not actually profiteering, right? And that's what we've seen so far. And I will just say, um, last night I was at that meeting yep. and people were outraged, but very articulate and very, and very you know, polite about it. But there were, you know, that 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 uh, Ancas Memorial um, Center has a capacity of 500 people. It was packed, and there is at least 150, 200 people outside. So a lot of people came to say we have we haven't been consulted. And so what you know you can, as this government has done, shut out people because you think it's the fastest way to get uh, what you want done. But you know what? When you shut out people and you don't engage people, you always have to go back to square one. And what happens in the meantime? We delay and we dither and we're not getting to the, solve the housing crisis that we are all facing. We, I wish we had a lot more time. We've got to get you back on here one of these days. It's been way too long since Sandy Shaw was, uh, was on the show. Uh, listen, I appreciate you taking time. Now, you're, and not too much of a big shot. See, not too much of a big shot to come on. I'm not a big shot. Not no, at all. I just, big shot. It's, you're the big shot. I'm just teasing. But listen, I do appreciate I do appreciate it. We always love when you come on. Thanks for talking today, Sandy. Appreciate yeah, and it. thanks for the great question, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you are a member of the private sector, if you are not working for a government, which probably makes you a minority at this point, but nonetheless, if you are someone who is working in the private sector, here's some good news for you. According to a new report, Canadian organizations are planning, quote, fairly substantial salary increases in 2024. Yes, Uh, Canadian workers could see an average pay increase of 3.6% next year, so says 
the uh, report of, that polled 700 companies across Canada. Hmm. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, thank you for the time today. My pleasure. Thank so, you. Uh, I, I am slightly cynical and uh, not quite on board believing that this is going to happen. Is my cynicism well-placed or am I just being too dark? No, I think it is well-placed and I will explain why. And I always talk about history. Sorry about that. And I don't mean ancient history. Uh, I was at the um, uh, working throughout the 70s um, in the banking industry in Ottawa, in Canada, and inflation kept going up, 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 up. And, and so, of course, guess what? Workers and unions said, hey, inflation's going up. I want more, of course. And so then we got into this spiral, wage price spiral, upward, ratcheting upward. You know, wages, inflation went up, so the wages went up. Wages went up, well, then the prices went up some more. And then finally, the central bank got serious and they drove the rates up. And Governor Volcker was very brutally blunt when he was asked how high he was going to take the rates up. He said, until people stop asking for wage increases. He actually said that in so many words. Very, I, That's a very, quote, close quote. He said, I will do it until basically people scream uncle and they stop asking for wage increases. And then he produced the worst recession since the Great Depression. So where I'm going with this is, is that I think the central bank, uh, and I mean by the governor, uh, uh, our, our own governor, Macklem, and the deputy governors, there's five of them, all highly trained people. And they give speeches all the time uh, to chambers of commerce across the country and so forth. I think they're going to increase the uh, uh, the warnings. Uh, moral suasion is the fancy word, okay? And they're going to be warning CEOs. They're going to be warning industry associations. If you start granting wage increases in the 3-4 range, we're going to be putting interest rates back up. Is that where you want to go? It's not a threat. It's 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 not threatening them. It's just telling them what the consequences are. But and but so Ian, it's called where, jawboning. It's jawboning. But Ian, where have those warnings been to the public sector? Because they're all getting three or four percent. So it it seems like somehow half of the this, workforce has caught this message and half has not. You've uh, said what I believe is the enormous vulnerability of this government, and. Uh, uh, and I, I say this government, I'm not trying to say the Liberal Party or the Liberal Party in history, because remember, it was the Liberal government of Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin that did the largest downsizing in Canadian. 75,000 public servants were terminated. And that was in the mid 90s. So I'm not trying to feather and, you know, tar and feather the entire Liberal Party, you know, throughout time. This government, I'm talking the current Trudeau Liberal government, has a very pronounced um, um, uh, softness or um, support uh, for the public sector. And people are, are picking that up. They're, they're recognizing it. I mean, people talk about it. And so this, I think, is a real weak spot because if the government, if the bank, the central bank is out there warning wage uh, employers and so forth, uh, be very careful about wage increases that are inflationary. And there, there's the public service and the Treasury Board, which is the manager of the public service in the government of Canada, and they're granting wage increases of four, five and six. It's just not going to fly. It's not going to resonate. It's not going to be credible. And it's going to undermine this government even further. So they are walking in between a very, very hard rock 
and a very, very hard place that could lead to their demise well, in the next election. And because of all, I won't say entirely because of all the public service increases, but there, it's going to be a part of it. We keep hearing that a recession is looming. We've heard this for a while, but now we recently in the last few days heard, you know, the economy, the GDP, yes. it's yep. slowing, it's slowing, the recession is coming. How are private sector businesses going to be giving out these raises if we're suddenly in the middle of a recession? That's when they're not making ra- giving raises; they're cutting staff. Exactly, precisely. And and I'm I haven't been because I knew that there was a I believe that there's very strong resilience in the U.S. and American economies, uh, and it has been uh, before uh, COVID. And I believe that they misdiagnosed the decision makers in finance and Bank of Canada panicked in 2020 when they said, oh, the economy is going to go over the cliff in disaster if we don't put in this enormous stimulus. I thought they panicked. I thought they completely uh, overjudged the situation, meaning that they underestimated the resilience. They overestimated the alleged weakness. And, and as I said, they they panicked. But where I'm going with this is, is, okay, they did. They realized the economy is much stronger. But because the the interest rate increases, which they belatedly in, put in because they realized they'd screwed up with too much stimulus in 2020 and 2021, both interest rates being too low, too much fiscal stimulus, three quarters, two thirds of a trillion dollars. Then they went the other way and said, oh, my God, oh, my God, we got to drive up the interest rates. Well, interest rates are a very tough, brutal instrument. They work. And it could tip us into recession. And believe me, the record is crystal clear on this. When you're in a recession, you're not granting big wage increases. You're laying people off. So if we do tip into recession, then I think this whole forecast, which isn't a bad forecast, but I think it will be you can throw it out the window because there won't be employers giving three and a half and four and five percent wage increases when you're laying off people. I hate to even ask this question, but do you think many people, most people who work in the public sector recognize that those in the private sector have not been keeping up with their wages. And and I'm not taking shots. I just, it, it's a reality. Do you think most people, because every time, and we just had it here in Hamilton with a QP deal, uh, yeah. the idea we have to keep up with inflation. We have to keep up with the cost of living. Do you think most people who work for governments recognize that they are uniquely being able to keep up somewhat because most others are falling yeah. behind? Uh, I don't think so. And and for anyone listening, they'll say, well, what are you talking about, Ian Lee? You're part of that group. Well, yes, I am. And I have been entire life. And let me tell you, it does not make me popular in the greater public sector. I keep saying we in the public sector, which is not just federal public servants. So I'm not just pointing the finger at them or at workers in Hamilton at the city of Ottawa or city of Hamilton level or the provincial. We in the broader public sector, and that includes colleges, school boards, universities, lead a privileged existence. We lead a privileged existence because we are almost never laid off. We do not face job loss as they do in the private sector. We have gold-plated pension plans. This has been studied to death by C.D. Howe and others. We have absolutely gold-plated pension plans. And there is a wage premium in the public sector, which has been documented over and over. And so, because we've lived in this for such a long time, and I can date it precisely to when Lester Pearson in 1967 introduced collective bargaining in the public service and set the precedent. And no, I'm not trashing collective bargaining and full disclosure. I am unionized at Carleton, but it created a different world 
And you are right. It's a very different world. But I think as th things get tough and times get tough, more difficult, you know, labor shortages, uh, less and less workers and fall the burden falling on younger people as the boomers exit the marketplace, you know, one in four over 65. I think a backlash is going to emerge and it's going to give an opportunity to to opposition parties like the conservatives who are going to make a calculated bet that this message that you and I are talking about is going to resonate if they talk about things like bringing back balance between the public sector and the private sector. I think it will resonate because there, there's a lot of people who think it's very unfair, you know, that people in the public sector have absolute job security, they have gold-plated pensions, and they have a higher a wage premium of anywhere from 10 to 20%, depending on which study you're looking at. And so there's a lot of, you know, people can start saying, well, where where's the fairness when when the private sector is paying, you know, they're, they're on average making less money and they're paying, you know, lots and lots of taxes to support this edifice. So what I'm trying to say is I think I've been saying this to my own colleagues. I think changes are coming. There's going to be a downsizing of the public sector, the broader public sector, including higher education. I know no one wants to talk about that, but uh, you know, healthcare is pressing so hard. There's more money needed for healthcare, and so things like higher education. I'm not talking primary and secondary, but certainly college universities, and and the federal government. Uh, is going to be facing, I think, some austerity, some some mm. serious austerity in the very near future. Remember, the public service in the last seven years hired over 100,000 people. And there's lots of people saying, wait a minute, our service standards went down and our total payroll went up and, and the number of people on the payroll went up. So I think there will be austerity um, imposed uh, in the next one, two, three, four we'll, years. We will see. And we will, you know, look, for, as someone, I'm sitting here as someone in the private sector twice, working for the newspaper and working for the radio yeah. station. It would be great to have a raise. I just find, we got to run, but I just find it maybe because of past history, but I find it very, very difficult to believe that everybody in the private sector should be sitting here going, rubbing their hands gleefully and saying, oh, goody, the money's coming. Uh, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Uh, Dr. Ian Lee from yes. Carleton University. Always appreciate your time. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a move afoot to try and get kids to not drink energy drinks. There are there is information, there is evidence that energy drinks, they, we know they have enormously high amounts of caffeine, some of them, and a lot of sugar. And there, there are a lot of people who say, you know what, this, we shouldn't be advertised. Kids should not be drinking this stuff. And so, as I say, there's a move afoot to try and get kids to stop. Question is, should this be something that governments ban? Should governments ban advertising of these things? Or should we say, you know what, parents... Here's where you step up and you make decisions and you guide your kids and you parent. And we don't have to put a law in place. Let's just let parents do what parents are supposed to do. Where, where should we go with this one? David Silberman is a Canadian National Chair in Strategic Marketing with the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, who joins me now. Thank you for doing this today. No problem. Good evening. Good evening. So this is, th th look, energy drinks are not the first thing we've talked about with this kind of thing. I know sugary cereals and there's been lots of talk about, you know, booze ads or cigarette ads or whatever. Where, where should the rules fall? It's a very broad question, I understand, but should the rules, should there be rules or should we rely on people or parents to be the, the arbiters of what's, what they want for their kids or not want for their kids? 
Well, it's an interesting question. And I think, I mean, a lot of us um, would like to think that parents could do that job, but with the marketing that we have today, uh, with the targeting and with the persuasiveness that we actually can see online with various influencers, and also given that we're, parents aren't always in the presence of their children, they're often out doing things on their own, I'm not sure that we can rely on parents to do this. And so I guess the question is, how far do we go in trying to regulate this activity? And that's the sort of question that comes up when you start thinking about these energy drinks. Is this just a teenager thing? Because, I mean, we have, as I say, we've, I don't believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe you're allowed anymore to advertise cigarettes on television, for example. And that's, you know, maybe targeted at kids, but that's targeted at everybody. Should we, is this a teenage only issue or is it a broader issue than that? I think it's primarily an issue for adolescents because I think there's a whole set of products, whether you're talking about flavored cannabis products, whether you're talking about tobacco, whether you're talking about alcohol, or whether you're talking about um, energy drinks. Um, and even more recently, we are even seeing the same kind of concerns being raised with regards to gambling ads in Ontario. Yes. The real issue is that um, people in the age group, let's say 11 or 12 to 18, don't really have the judgment and the life experience needed to be able to make decisions about some of these products, which can have negative effects. And that is why I think it becomes a issue of concern for both the public and the government that we do what we can to make sure that when people start making decisions about these sorts of products, that they're old enough to be able to judge the risks themselves and do what they feel is right for them. And I mean, this is true of tobacco. We know mm -hmm. it's bad for you, but if somebody's 23 and wants to smoke cigarettes, we're not going to stop them. But it's quite a different question when they're younger. Now, the whole issue with energy drinks is, are they as bad as tobacco and some of the things that are actually banned for people in that age group? Probably not. But on the other hand, we also know, and I think the medical community is pretty much in line on this, that high consumption of these drinks by adolescents is not a good thing. It's so interesting that you, I mean, we're talking about the age and adolescence and everything, and yet in some parts of our culture, some of the things, some of the very heavy decisions that we allow... We say like, you can drive when you're 16, you can get behind the wheel of a 5,000 pound bullet when you're 16 years old. Um, but we don't want you to do other things until much, much, much later. We're not going to hold you criminally responsible for things when you're 16. It seems like we're sort of, and I know we're talking about energy drinks and we're going a little broad here, but it seems like we're all over the map when it comes to, well, when can you actually make good decisions? We, we don't seem to have a good idea of that because again, so many big decisions fall at all different ages. That's a good point. I mean, I think clearly uh, the ages are arbitrary and the reason that ages are different for things like driving, um, using a firearm, etc., are perhaps different than the age when you can go in and buy alcohol. You know, some people would argue you can actually join the military and go and get yourself killed yes. before you drink alcohol. 
I mean, these are fairly common arguments, and I think a lot of them have to do with historically the way we've uh, managed society and the fact that at some point there were, you know, 15, 16 or 17 was the age, age at which a lot of kids had left home and had already taken jobs. And so we have certain rules that date from that period and other rules that date from significantly afterwards when we learned that uh, tobacco uh, was really bad for you. So, you know, it's hard to get into an issue of whether there should be consistency. I think it's probably better just for us to focus on whether we think having 15-year-olds consuming huge amounts of these energy drinks is a good idea. We also have the issue, too, that we have a pretty porous border and you know we're we're in a free trade situation with the United States and the actual regulations that they have with regards to energy drinks are different than our own so you can sell a can of an energy drink with a 200 milligrams of caffeine in the United States whereas the legal limit in Canada i think is 180 so there's certain issues here that make this kind of complicated i i think from, from my perspective, I think having people wait until, and there's a lot of medical research on this, until their brains are more or less fully developed, and a lot of people will argue that happens around 18 or 19, that's really the time when people should be able to make these decisions for themselves. Your expertise, you're the chair of strategic marketing. Let's get to the marketing here. Is there a, are teenagers, are adolescents uniquely susceptible to being convinced of things. If you have a clever ad, and I mean, every one of these companies is trying to put out clever ads, they want to sell their product. If you can put out a clever ad, is an 18-year-old or a 17-year-old more likely to be lured in by that than a 30-year-old to a clever ad? That's, that's a tough question. But what I would say is that the media habits and the way which the current generation of adolescents communicate and spend their time is quite different than people that are in their 30s. They spend a lot of time on social media, a lot of time watching videos, reels, uh, TikTok videos, etc. And these tend to be very persuasive and almost addictive which probably is less the case with the sort of advertising that 30-year-olds might be watching on television or perhaps banner ads that appear when they're going on to their favorite website. I mean, in fact, by the time you're in your 30s, you're probably taking action in order to avoid advertising, <laughs> trying yeah. to get browsers without advertising or trying to watch things on television when there aren't advertising. So it's interesting. And I think because children and adolescents spend a lot of time on social media, they can actually almost be trapped in a world of their own where they're not really getting a balanced perspective on many of these things. And they're also heavily affected by influencer. And we know that influencer marketing is very effective for this younger audience precisely because of their media habits. And influencers are one of the main tools that the energy drink manufacturers are using to market their products. 
And yet it does seem, and I don't disagree uh, with anything you just said, it does seem, though, that you, you mentioned before things like gambling. Uh, I, I'm sure that there are adolescents and younger people who are being drawn into this, but I certainly would not suggest that the gambling market, especially as it's expanded into sports and other things, is dominated by adolescents now. For whatever, That is one where it seems like it hits all ages, where for whatever reason, that same advertisement that may appeal to a 16-year-old is also appealing to the 50-year-old who likes sports. So, so there's some that you don't have to target at a certain group. It's the idea of it. Yes, I think the real issue, though, this comes back again to what does it mean to be a 13 or 14 year old is do you have the judgment and the knowledge to be able to make it a safe decision for yourself? And that's precisely why a lot of the gambling ads themselves are a concern because they're using celebrities and athletes that young people aspire to be like and who love people like Austin Matthews, for example. And so if you are really looking up to the people that are doing the ads for something, then that makes you want to do it. And it probably causes you to underweight the negative consequences of doing something. And for that matter, too, you're probably not investigating what the negative consequences are. I think while this is perhaps unrealistic too, does a 19 or a 20 year old go out and assess the negative consequences of what they're going to consume carefully? Perhaps not. But I guess we feel that when you're an adult, you should have the ability to make choices that you want. Whereas what we probably want to do is protect adolescents so that they can at least be safe until they finished high school and then if they want, they can mess their lives up <laughs> as much as they want. I know I'd be facetious there, but I guess that's sort of the theory. Well, you can't stop people from these regulations. You, you can't stop everybody from doing stupid stuff. That's There's no question that's about right. that. All right, exactly. just before I let you go, uh, I mean, my, my, my initial thought on this is this is, if you are running an ad, if you're a company and you've hired an ad agency and they have come up with an ad that is clever enough or appealing enough to sell the product, you're penalizing someone for doing their job really well. That's an argument that we're going to get into, you know, with someone else about whatever. But I got to thinking, what if, you know, we right now, you can turn on your TV and it's usually, I think, more out of the American stations, but nonetheless, you'll see an ad for, I don't know, pick whatever medication that we've never heard of before that suddenly there's a commercial for it. And it's always, you know, people walking slowly, holding hands. And then all of a sudden it says, and by the way, contact your doctor. If you start to have, you know, bleeding stools and a leg that's giving out on you and your arm falls off and all this stuff, all they list all the symptoms. And somehow though, I've always thought, well, that would be a complete deterrent to me <laughs> if, if all of a sudden I'm trying to buy this thing to make myself better. And then it tells me that my ear could fall off because of this, that would seem to be a deterrent. And yet clearly they work because they wouldn't still be advertising if it didn't. What if you did that? What if you said, fine, go ahead and advertise for all these things that are bad for you that towards adolescence, but you got to put in the, t- all the things there that, well, this could lead to diabetes and it could lead to anxiety and depression and blah, blah, blah. Would that change anything? It's interesting. I mean, that's a whole other topic. And so, I mean, I think when you start looking at pharmaceutical advertising and you ask yourself, what is the effect of them having those um, sort of sentences and disclaimers at the end with all the side effects that they have? And for some reason, I think people just tune those out. 
So Agreed. the reality is if people are tuning them out, not paying attention to them, then they're not really becoming informed of the negative consequences. And I think, as I say, it goes back to this whole issue of, of adolescence. How do we protect them? I mean, I think, I mean, I think some regulation on influencers and how how aggressively they can promote these uh, energy drinks to adolescents might be a good idea. The other thing, too, is I think retailers that are found to be responsible for selling things that have come in from the United States that are actually not legal in Canada. I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be fine. So, I mean, I think there's things the government can do to improve the situation. I don't think it's we want to be as serious as we were with tobacco, but I think we probably should do more than we're doing right now to try to stop the promotion of these drinks mm. with um, younger people. Influencer problem. We have to ban Kim Kardashian. If we do that, the world's problems go away. Kim Kardashian is outlawed. Maybe. Well, she can she can promote <laughs> her clothes and her music, just not Monster or Time Energy, I guess. That might be another That might way. work. Uh, David Soberman, Canadian National Chair in Strategic Marketing with the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Great conversation. Thank you for this today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tomorrow, well, this time tomorrow, will have been seven minutes into game time. Uh, the Hamilton Ticats will be playing the Ottawa Red Blacks. I almost said Rough Riders. I almost said the Ottawa Rough Riders. That is, um, I don't know, there's got to be a fine or something <laughs> for using the name of a team that hasn't been around for a couple decades by now. Um, anyway, they're going to be playing Ottawa, whichever team you want to call in Ottawa, they're going to be playing the Red Blacks. And to say that this is the most important game of the Ticat season so far, I, I, I really do not believe that is an overstatement. I really don't think that that's an overstatement. Let me tell you why. First of all, Hamilton needs every win it can get right now to maybe try and catch up with Montreal. It's got a problem. It's going to it's going to be incredibly difficult. Montreal's got the tiebreak against Hamilton and is two wins ahead. So Hamilton has to win 3 games more than Montreal the rest of the way to finish ahead. That that's exceedingly difficult to imagine them doing, especially with a very tough schedule when that's the second part. Hamilton's schedule, they play Ottawa tomorrow. September 16, they play Winnipeg. That's never an easy one. Then they play Toronto in Toronto on the 23rd. And we know how things have gone against the Argos this year. Uh, you can hate the Argos all you want, but you have to tip your cap to the fact that they have had their way with the Ticats and it really has not been, there's been moments that it's been close, but end of the game, it's not been close. This is a, this is a huge game for the Ticats to win. Oh, so just to get some wins, they got to put one up here, but here's why it's incredibly important now, because Hamilton has two, a two game lead over, or has a game lead over Ottawa, but it's basically a two game lead already because they've got the tiebreaker against Ottawa. So if they end up tied, Hamilton finishes ahead. Well, if Ottawa wins this one, the chances of Hamilton slipping into the basement become more realistic, but it's not even that. Calgary, on the flip side, you know how the crossover works. If the fourth place team in the West 
finishes with more points than the third place team in the East. Forgive me if you're a diehard and you know this already. I'm not trying to patronize you. But if the fourth place team in the West finishes with more points than the third place team in the East, they come over and become the third Eastern team. Well, Calgary is tied with Hamilton right now. A Hamilton loss is really bad this week because Calgary's got a rematch with Edmonton, which, as you know, is hardly a powerhouse of a team. No reason to think that Calgary won't beat Edmonton. And then over the next couple of weeks, while Hamilton is slugging it out with some of the best teams in the league, Calgary has a bye and then they play Montreal. That's, you know, Montreal's ahead of Hamilton, but they're only six and five. It's not like they are a dominant outfit. Calgary could win that game. They're at home. Then Calgary plays Hamilton which could become the entire season for the Ticats if they don't beat Ottawa tomorrow. This is, this is an unbelievably big game, and it's not even just to make the playoffs. It's not even just because you, every year you say, well, yeah, of course you want to make the playoffs. Remember, the Grey Cup is in Hamilton this year. It will be catastrophically disappointing and a catastrophic failure if the Hamilton Ticats, when hosting the Grey Cup, don't even make the playoffs. I mean, you want them to be in the Grey Cup game. We saw two years ago how good it was when they were in the Grey Cup game and how exciting it was and all the rest. It will be, I don't know, is there a better word? I would say a catastrophic failure. You can pick a better word if you have one. But I will say it is a catastrophic failure. Not if you don't make the Grey Cup. Only two teams make the Grey Cup. That's, you, you would be great, but no one's going to say that that's expected. But to not even make the playoffs, to not even qualify, in a league where it's harder to not make the playoffs than to make the playoffs. Six teams make it. Only three don't. It is more elite in a weird, perverse kind of way to not, you're in a smaller group of elite outfits with elite being the opposite of what it's supposed to mean to not make the playoffs in the CFL than to make the playoffs. In a year when you're hosting and you're trying to build excitement and you're trying to get the city going and you're trying to get all the excitement happening, it would be a catastrophic failure for the Ticats not to make, at least to make the playoffs. And this game has, there is a significant point of impact on whether that's going to happen. If they lose, it doesn't mean they're not in the playoffs, but it makes it a whole lot harder, especially if Calgary does what Calgary could do. And I would argue that not making the playoffs I don't know which is worse. I don't know what would be a bigger slap and a bigger mistake, not making the playoffs because you finished last in the East or not making the playoffs and a, because a crossover team came and got you. Let me bring in our friend Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, who is also one of the voices that you'll hear here on CHML in the Ticats Audio Network tomorrow during the game. Bubba, how are you? Yes, sir. How are you? I'm good. We're just talking about the the 
implications of tomorrow and how absolutely important for to block the crossover, to stay out of the base. There's there's so many reasons the Ticats have to, and they should, but there's so many reasons the Ticats have to win this game tomorrow. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, taking out, it will, it will really be a real hard blow to the Ottawa Red Blacks if they uh, won. They're already out with this, you know, as you probably talked about, the uh, situation with the season series. Yep. Uh, so they can't win that from the Tiger Cats. Divisionally, they haven't won a game. They're 0-5. The Tiger Cats are, I think, they're 2-5. So, I mean, as the Tiger Cats try to attempt to get some help with, uh, from the Montreal Alouettes or the losing streak, whatever they try to, you know, try to reach second place, you know, that divisional record can mean something. So, yeah, locking out Ottawa, we've got all kinds of problems. There's a, I'm hearing... A lot of reports out of Ottawa where there's a lot of pressure on GMs. Sean Burke, uh, the quarterbacking situation has been a mess. There, you know, the, the, the Crumb story was great for a little while, but at the end of the day, he's a four-stringer. As we're learning here in Hamilton, it's real tough when you have, you know, your the guy that you plan to be your number one quarterback isn't there, and uh, someone's learning off the job. So it's very difficult for, for, for Ottawa and. And and a win tomorrow, you know, I've been talking about the horrible implications of a loss. A win, you're right, a win basically buries Ottawa and a win keeps you, keeps that crossover from really gaining any traction. You you would almost, if you're the Ticats, because you've got a game coming up against Calgary and both teams have a few tough games along the way. You could basically put yourself in a position almost to block the crossover also with a win tomorrow. There's just, like, the, the loss would be horrendous tomorrow. A win would be monumentally helpful to what you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. There's certainly no doubt about it. And you're right, this crossover is, the way it's setting up in the West right now, um, with kind of that mucky middle where you have Edmonton, who's slightly improved, I guess you'd say they majorly improved, actually. And I think they're going to win a couple more games. You have Calgary, where, you know, they're coming off a big win over the Elks. Um, but, you're, you know, they kind of put themselves in a tough situation with some poor play earlier this year. And then Saskatchewan, who were in 6-5 and, and coming off a big win on Labor Day over Winnipeg. But you know when they go to Winnipeg uh, on the weekend, they're going to get whipped. And I don't know if they're – I don't even know if they're a 500 team because they, too, are lost. Oh, we're gonna try and uh, we're gonna try and reconnect with Bubba there. We've got a really bad connection, so we'll give uh, we'll let Ben try and reconnect there and see if we can we can do that. But yeah, it's um, you don't want to lose tomorrow. That that makes it uh, that makes it a big big deal. It is amazing to me though. You know, every league has a team that, and it's not really true, but there's every league has a team that always seems to be at the bottom. And I, and it's it, Ottawa. I I know Ottawa's had some okay years, but it it seems like Ottawa is that team. I don't know why. It's just, it, and yet here we are with the Ottawa Red Blacks are the team that is going to have a big big impact on on what the Tie Cats do. So, do the Tie Cats, Bubba? Do they? Rebound, still with their third string quarterback, still with some problems with a little drama in the dressing room this week with Duke Williams being cut from the team or not being cut or coming or going or who knows what. All the stuff that's going on. Is this a, a rebound win for Hamilton? I think they're going to win this game. Um, my, my only concern here 
and this opens up a whole new discussion. I'll have to come on for an hour with you and discuss about this one. Is the fact that they are, you know, they played Monday, right? Football is a game where, you, you know, it's not basketball. It's certainly not baseball. It's not an everyday kind of game, right? So you're coming in with one day practice, one day of travel, one day off, and then you got to play a football game, right? After, you know, and remember that game that they played against Toronto was, you know, during a heat warning, right? So who knows what, how they're feeling in terms of, you know, the, the, their bodies, um, and you're playing a team that's coming off a bye week. That's a concern to me. Yeah, it should be. It should be. We will. Uh, we will see tomorrow. You can. Uh, so Bubba will be on here along with the rest of the crew uh, on 900 CHML for the game starting at 6:30 tomorrow. Followed, of course, the game after the game. Stay tuned for Rick Zamperin and the fifth quarter. You can call in and. Um, regardless of how many wobbly pops you've consumed, the lines are open. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, before we let you go, because we've got a few more minutes here, and I wanted to ask you about this really quickly, because uh, I think the biggest story in, I was going to say in local sports, it is absolutely the biggest story in local sports, maybe in Canadian sports right now, is what Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Hamilton guy, is doing with Team Canada in the World Basketball uh, Championships over in Europe. It is... Uh, I think inarguably, now not every not every player from the NBA is playing in this. Obviously, there's a lot of guys that aren't. But I think inarguably, so far in this tournament, with a lot of guys from the NBA and some big stars from the NBA in this thing, he's been the best player in this tournament. I mean, he's right there with Luca, right? I mean, that's they're one and two in my opinion in this tournament. And you add this, which this has never happened. Canada are the highest scoring team in in, in the World Cup. Right? And they don't have all their guys. They don't even have all their guys, right? Remember, like, there's no Wiggins and no Murray here who they, that really could have been with this team. So, like, this this is not even the best edition. Now, someone could say this: the United States don't have the best edition. That's fair comment. But they've been there. They're five-time champs. We've never been where we are right now. And this is why I'm, I'm really, and I've been kind of pounding this storyline and this team uh, all week in my, at least, for the, actually, for the whole, entire tournament, because I'm hoping people that are watching me on THCH are understanding what's happening here. Like, this is a revi- not even a revival of Canada basketball in the sense that we haven't been to the Olympics you know, since 2000 with Steve Nash. But, you know, this team is special. They're good, and they're led by arguably one of the best five players in the NBA. Jay Gilgis Alexander. Yeah. Say that over and over again from Hamilton, Ontario. It's one of the things that has changed with basketball is, and I don't know why this was, for the longest time, if you were a hockey player from Canada and Canada, Team Canada called you up and said, we want you to play for your country, it was without question, everybody almost said yes. Basketball, it was a harder sell. Now, and maybe it's because guys realize they're playing with equals and they're playing with great players. Now, it seems like all those great players from this country are eager to play for the country, and that's making a huge difference. Here's the difference, Scott, and, 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 and I hope Canada soccer are opening their eyes here. Um, they got their stuff together at Canada Basketball, right? There was a reason why, you know, some guys and many guys, and even like a guy like an Andrew Wiggins, there were reasons why they would say, why would I put my body on the line to play for an organization that's not treating us in a first-class way or treating us like a national team? All right, and at the very least, treating us like the way, the way hockey players are treated with Hockey Canada. 
right? So this is a big difference in the organization. They have the proper people running the organization. And this is, I mean, look what they've done, right? Remember, Nick Nurse was supposed to be the head coach of this team, right? This yep, guy, yep. Jordy Fernandez, came in on August the 1st. Well, right? They some... put together, they, put, they had a couple of practices and played three exhibition games. Fresh voice. This guy's this guy's this guy's working magic with this team. Yeah, fresh voice sometimes works. Uh, we got to run, but is it a foregone conclusion? Now I know this is secondary to what's going on there. Foregone conclusion that Shea Gilgis Alexander is the Golden Horseshoe Athlete of the Year, the best player. There's a bunch of good athletes from around here, but is what he has done guaranteed now that he's the top athlete from this area for the year? If you if you combine what he has done for his country, even if they were to lose the, the early this morning, and what he's done being, you know, all pro, that's only five. That's, again, the five best players in the NBA last season. And who knows what he's going to do this year is OKC get even better with their youth. There's no doubt on what it. Like, it would be, it would be, you are people wearing dark shades? Like, what's going on here? You would, you would, you would have to almost find some crazy explanation for not doing it. I, I don't know that you could argue that a guy who's one of the, you're right, one of the five best players on the entire planet in, in a sport that is played around the planet could not be the best athlete from this area right now, but we'll, you know, we'll see. We'll see. And, and, and quickly, quickly, Scott. Yeah. I, I think he's going to get better. Sure he is. Sure he is. He's only what, 26, 25? Yeah. So, you know, 27 to 29 is usually when you hit your peak and your physical abilities b- hit the peak ma- meshing with your understanding of the game and everything. Absolutely, he's going to be better. He, 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 he could be, and I, you know, Steve Nash is a high bar to reach, but he could be the best Canadian basketball player ever before he's done. We, well, we're not going to say that yet. I'm not saying that yet, but I'm saying he could, on his trajectory, he could be that when it's all done. Different types of players, but he's going in that direction. Mm. There's every reason to believe that. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's a goal of his, deep down. Oh, I don't doubt it. Who wouldn't want to? Uh, we got to run. Baba, uh, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate you jumping in. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.